You are listening to the Financial Clarity for Doctors podcast by Finity Group, LLC, where we discuss the pertinent financial planning topics facing physicians and other medical professionals. Discussions in this show should not be construed as specific recommendations or investment advice. Always consult with your investment professional before making important investment decisions. Securities offered through Cambridge Investment Research, Inc., a registered broker-dealer, member FINRA, SIPC. And now, here are your hosts, Rochelle Vanderzanden and Corey Janoff. Uh, hello, everyone. Welcome back to Financial Clarity for Doctors. This is Rochelle Vanderzanden here, as always, with Corey Janoff today. Hello, hello. Hi. So today we are going to talk a little bit about a kind of touchy subject for some people. We wanted to talk about permanent life insurance. It's one of those things that a lot of people love to hate. And I understand, I feel like we hear a lot of stories about it being purchased maybe inappropriately or sold inappropriately. And we've touched on it in passing a few times, but we just wanted to delve into it and talk about it in more detail. I think there are a little time, a lot of times when it, it's not purchased appropriately, but there are some times where it can be appropriate and it can potentially be an asset to a financial plan. So we just want to give you guys all the information that we can today on what permanent life insurance is, what it can potentially do, so that you guys are are well prepared to either think about that or maybe, you know, if someone is trying to sell it to you, at least have some information so that you can make a good decision there. So without further ado, it can be a pretty complicated topic. So we're going to start with some basics and Corey is going to start us off. Yes. And, you know, so we're clear, we're kind of on the same page as most of you are who have any familiarity or understanding of permanent life insurance. In most cases, it probably is inappropriate. And that's where it gets a bad reputation is because it's often oversold Um, by life insurance agents to people who have no business buying permanent life insurance and they don't realize it until years later and and they regret their decision. So super important that we understand when it could be useful, the scenarios where it does potentially make sense. And, you know, there's a reason it exists. There are certain unique scenarios where it can be very beneficial Um, to help someone ultimately achieve their goals. And that's, if you've listened to this podcast before, you know, that's what a a resonating theme is throughout, is what are your goals? What are the optimal ways to go about achieving those goals? There's often more than one way to get there, but in in some scenarios, you know, certain avenues can be a little more effective than others. So like Rochelle said, let's start with the basics. What is permanent life insurance? Well, when it comes to life insurance, there's a lot of different types out there. Whole life, variable life, term life, adjustable life, index, universal, uh, a lot of different combinations of those even. But at the end of the day, they all fall into two categories. There's either temporary coverage or permanent coverage. Temporary coverage is is called term insurance. You've probably heard of that before. It's the simplest form, very straightforward. Uh, Typical term policies have a set number of years that they last for, or maybe they go to a certain age, but a common scenario would be 10, 20, or 30-year term lengths. So you get a policy, it lasts for, say, 20 years. After that 20 years is up, it expires. Well, it technically doesn't expire, but the cost shoots through the roof, so no one would ever keep their term in place after that time period. So you're you're getting it for a, a short period of time. Um, 
And most people don't need their life insurance to last forever. They're just getting it to protect the family while the kids are in the house or until the mortgage is paid off, until they reach retirement. You know, by definition, once you're financially independent and can afford to retire, the odds of you needing additional money in, in the event that you die are pretty slim because we don't need any more money if we can afford to retire. So, you know, the need for life insurance, you, you need to have a really compelling reason there to, to maintain your life insurance beyond that financial independence point in time. And we'll go through what some of those reasons might be. But long story short, term insurance is uh, covering a need for a defined period of time. It's the most appropriate form of coverage for most people. And conveniently, it's also the least expensive form of coverage. Which is why it's probably the most appropriate for a lot of people. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So yeah. You know, a lot of, most, you know, if you're talking to the majority of Americans, they, they can't afford to get enough death benefit with a permanent policy. It's just, it's cost prohibitive. Um, you know, most people need a large amount of, of coverage, you know, millions of dollars to provide for their family if they were to kick the bucket in an untimely fashion. And, uh, and the only way they can afford that is through a relatively inexpensive term policy. And, you know, sidetracking here a little bit, um, you know, the ability to qualify for life insurance is based on health mm -hmm. and the cost is based on age and health. So, you know, in some people's scenarios, they may not be able to qualify for coverage or it may be very expensive just given their background and, and health history. Um, so, so the cost can really vary widely for individuals, but regardless of the scenario, term is most likely going to be the, the less, or it will always be the less expensive option for you individually, but compared to someone else, you know, it might be more expensive than someone else's policy just given their background. Yeah, and I think if you think about it from an insurance carrier's perspective, if they're, you know, giving you a term policy, they only have to pay you if you pass away within that set period of time. But if they're selling you like a permanent life insurance policy, you could potentially keep that forever and they're on the hook for that death benefit. So that's where it becomes a lot more expensive. Yeah, as we all are aware, we're going <laughs> to pass away at some point in time. It's just a matter of when. So with those permanent life insurance policies, it's just a matter of when the insurance company has to write the check. So they have to charge more for that policy, which makes sense. And we won't get super in depth into the into the weeds of, of all the different types of permanent life insurance policies and, and how they work, but, but just a, a general overview, whole life is probably um, the most well-known and, and people often refer to permanent life insurance as whole life insurance because it lasts your whole life. But in reality, whole life is one subset of the broad permanent category. There's other types like variable life and adjustable and universal. Um, you know, again, they all, they all can last indefinitely whole life policies traditionally, and there's a lot of different iterations of each of them. So it can get kind of complex, but traditionally Definitely. speaking, whole life policies are, are fixed, guaranteed, you know exactly what you're getting. You pay a set price, you get a set death benefit amount. Um, it often will increase over time. Uh, they can be structured a bunch of different ways, but it's basically you want to know exactly what you're getting and know exactly what the cost will be, and, and it's all laid out for you variable life insurance policies. So I guess taking a step back, with all permanent life insurance policies, you have the death benefit, the premium, 
And then there's this thing called cash value within the policy. And as time goes on, as you age, the cost of insurance goes up. So what a lot of people will do, rather than pay an increasing amount every year that goes by, they might wanna just, for budgeting purposes, pay a fixed amount. And that fixed amount early on might actually be more than what the actual cost of insurance is. So hypothetically, let's say your cost of insurance is $100 a month and you're paying $500 a month, that's a $400 excess per month. That excess amount doesn't just go away, it goes into that cash value bucket within the policy. And that's your money, you know, you paid it in there. Um, and, and, you know, traditionally speaking, people will overpay for their policy in the early years and build up that cash value bucket, knowing that when they're older, the cost of insurance is gonna be a lot higher than what they're actually paying into it and you'll have that cash reserve built up to cover that difference. And a lot of times I think these permanent life insurance products are, are sold as a way to build that cash value. They're not even sold as insurance. It's like, look at this money that you can grow over time, but it gets oversimplified and often isn't as efficient as people expect it to be. And it, it's a big commitment. Like you have that set premium or, or it may be a variable premium, but large premiums that you have to pay every month in order for it to really grow. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so we have that cash value component in there that you know, is often traditionally would be used to cover that those excess costs in your later years. Um, and you can math it out to where you pay a set amount for your entire life or for a set number of years and then your coverage is it will be guaranteed to last forever simple easy straightforward with some of the newer policies you know variable life insurance for example you can take that cash value and invest it into sub accounts which are very similar to mutual funds and then your cash value can ride the wave of the stock market you know if if you're invested in a a, a portfolio that and stocks do well you could see some some decent growth in that portfolio, but it could also go down in value. If the stock market goes down, it, it'll drag down your your portfolio with you. Um, some a newer version of that are these indexed policies, where rather than um, you know tying to to a mix of different mutual funds, will tie it, you can pick a, a specific index to tie it to. You know, hypothetically, it might be the S and P 500 is a common one. And if the S&P 500 goes up, you get a credit. If it goes down though, they'll often, you often get zero credits. And so you're not actually invested in the market. It, your, your account is just tied to, um, tied to that index. And again, trying not to get too far into the weeds <laughs> of this, but essentially when you put money into a life insurance policy, any excess goes into the company's general bond portfolio and bonds spit out interest. With the interest from those bonds, they'll go out and buy options on the S&P 500 in this example. And an option, if you didn't take any finance classes in, in college, like I did, <laughs> it's, um, it's just your right to purchase something for a stated price. So they'll buy an option on the S&P 500 for say, you know, what are we at today? Like 3,400 points or something. So, you know, it might be a one-year option with the right to purchase it at 3,400. If the S&P 500 a year from now is higher than 3,400, they'll buy it at 3,400, sell it for the difference and credit your account 
whatever that difference is. If the S&P 500 is below 3,400, they just don't exercise the option. They don't purchase it for more than it's worth and you get zero credits that year. So you can I think have... a really easy way to think about it is that there's a floor and there's a ceiling. So your exactly. floor might be zero or one or two, and then your ceiling might be like 10%. So even if the yeah. S&P 500 goes up 18%, you're only going to get 10%. Correct. Yeah. So there's yeah. there's definitely that the cap on the upside. Mm -hmm. And given interest rates have been low for a while now, many companies uh, have decreased their caps. So uh, we're kind of going in a direction I didn't want to go here. But anyways, so you have a little bit of a background understanding, you know, different ways, different policies work, that cash value component. Um, there can be some investment gains, but you also have that huge drag of cost of insurance attached to it. So first and foremost, permanent policies, it's insurance. You're getting it for insurance purposes. If that's not your primary reason to get it, then we may need to take a step back and rethink things. Yeah, now, so I think like that first step with the, oh, go ahead, Corey. You were, no, I was I gonna turn like over you. you to, okay, good. <laughs> yeah, sorry. So with insurance in general, like the idea is that we're probably buying this for some sort of protection. Like that's, that's the primary reason for a lot of life insurance policies, but there's a few other reasons that we might be able to utilize life insurance as a tool in our financial plan. So I think the biggest reason that people might want to set up a permanent life insurance policy is to make sure that beneficiaries inherit like assets. It can also be a way when we're estate planning to make sure things are kind of evenly divided among your kids. So maybe if one child is going to inherit your house, like we set up some permanent life insurance so that your other child is inheriting an equivalent to what the, the value of that house might be. Like there's a lot of different ways that people can use that in estate planning. I think another reason that people might have permanent life insurance and maybe permanent need for life insurance is if you have people in your care that maybe have special needs. So if I have a child that I know is going to need ongoing care long-term and you know maybe I'm getting to retirement, I'm expecting to spend on my assets and I might not have a ton of extra to leave behind, like a life insurance policy can be a good way to ensure that, that they have something when they need it. Um, and I know there's, there's quite a few other reasons. I think estate taxes are an interesting one. Like you can set up a life insurance policy to basically be the thing that pays expected taxes. And in a lot of places, this is only going to be an issue if your estate is pretty large. Like the, the federal level for estate taxes is like $11 million and above. This does change though. So like, that's what it is right now. It doesn't mean that that's going to be what it is when you pass. Like that's just not something that we can predict very easily. And then at the state level, you may also have some, some estate taxes or some investment or inherited taxes. So it just kind of depends on what state you're living in at the time that you pass. Um, so life insurance can be used as a tool to basically pay that estate tax bill. And it, it gets pretty complicated, but that way you can leave the rest of your estate intact for the people that are inheriting it. So whether it's property or investments or anything like that, we don't have to sell property to pay estate taxes. We don't have to sell investments to pay estate taxes if we use that as a tool. Do you have anything to add there, Corey? Did I miss anything? I think diving a little further into some of those things would be helpful. The the real estate one, yeah. um, the example. That one I gave. didn't talk about, yeah. <laughs> well, you mentioned if, if you, you know, one right. can 
inherit the house, the other kid's an equivalent value. Some people might be thinking, why don't they just both split the house? Well, maybe you live in San Diego and you have a nice home on the beach there and uh, you have two children. One of your kids also lives in San Diego and, and would enjoy inheriting that house to have a, a place on the beach themselves. Your other kid lives in New York and doesn't isn't really interested in having a beach house in San Diego because they'd only get out there once or twice a year and they don't want to deal with maintaining it and sharing the cost. Like it's just not fair for the kid in San Diego who would get to use the house way more often to share those mm -hmm. costs. So maybe you say, all right, kid number one, you get the million dollar beach house in San Diego. Kid number two, I'm just going to give you a million dollars in cash. So it's fair and mm -hmm. you know, hopefully minimize the sibling bickering there. Yeah. And that way you also don't have to sell the property to make exactly. it equitable. Yeah. Well, and on, on along those lines too, like maybe you're invested in a lot of real estate properties. Maybe you have some commercial properties, rental properties, you name it. And some of those properties may have loans attached to them. Um, you know, if you were to pass away with those debts outstanding, you got two scenarios would play out. Either your heirs would have to refinance those debts into their name, which they may not be in a position to afford to do, and they may not even be able to get approved for that new loan. And if that's the case, then they've got a, they have nine months to sell the property and pay off the loan. Otherwise the bank's foreclosing on it, or they use other assets, have to sell those, maybe stock market's down. They got to sell investments that are, you know, down in value at that time um, to pay off the loan. So you, you might get a life insurance policy to make sure that those debts are taken care of so that your family's not scrambling to figure out how to manage that. Um, if you pass away, the estate taxes one, I think now currently for most people isn't a huge issue, but that very well could change. Um, this is the highest federal estate tax exemption we've ever seen. Um, it, I would encourage you guys to go back and listen to our estate planning episode with Bob Cabasi. I think it was last fall of 2019 um, or last winter. But, uh, you know, it, every time we get a new president, taxes change. I'm sure some of you have, by the time this gets released, hopefully we'll know who the president is, um, you know, whether it's President Trump for another four years or if or, uh, Vice President Biden gets the nod. Um, you know, there, there's chatter around Biden's tax proposal. I don't know if it includes anything about estate taxes, but wouldn't it be surprised if that federal limit gets lowered at some point in the future, which would then affect many more people, especially you who are listening to this. And then depending on what state you live in, I think there currently there's 18 states plus DC that either have a, an estate tax or an inheritance tax. So if you're in one and of those, here in locations. Oregon, the limit is like a million dollars. It's not yeah. eleven million. It's one. <laughs> and that includes the value of your life insurance, unless your life insurance is held in a trust outside of your estate. Um, but anyway, so uh, yeah, you could very well between all of your investments, your house, your assets, like you could very well be well above that that threshold, depending on what state you're in. If your state has a one million dollar limit, um, you could owe a pretty hefty tax bill upon death. And you may want to carry some life insurance to cover that tax bill so your kids can inherit all of your assets rather than inheriting a tax bill along with it. So the other thing... But it's definitely not something you have to do, but it, it can be a very useful tool. Correct. Yeah. You know, depending yeah. on who you are, like I've talked to some people, you know, no right or wrong way to go about it. Some people are like, yeah, I don't really care. Keep it simple. Just 
if there's taxes, so be it. My kids can just be lucky they get anything. Other people yeah. <laughs> want as little money as possible to go to the government. They would rather, you know, walk across the country and back barefoot than send a penny to Uncle Sam and they'll do anything and everything they can to minimize their tax taxes owed. Um, and this is something that that you could do to potentially save hundreds of thousands, if not millions in taxes at death. Um, another thing we didn't really touch on, um, but and I won't spend much time on it, but uh, business partnerships and buy-sell agreements. So um, if you have a valuable business and let's say Rochelle and I are in business and we own a company that sells widgets and we sell a lot of widgets and it's a very valuable business, maybe it's worth $10 million um, and we each own it 50-50. And in our operating agreement, we say if if one of us passes away, the other will buy out the shares um, from the from the deceased person. So like from whoever inherits it from me, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because you know the way Rochelle's is set up, you know her husband and family would inherit all of her stuff. Well, if that includes five million dollars of business equity, as much as I like her husband, he's a good golfer, happy to play golf with him. I don't know if he necessarily wants to be in business with me. He may want to just take the cash and and move along um, rather than join the business. And I may not necessarily want to be in business with him. I'd rather just take total control of the business if Rochelle's no longer around. So I pay Rochelle five million dollars to buy out uh, her share of the business and I keep total control of the business that way. Problem is, where am I getting the $5 million from? <laughs> I might need a life mm -hmm. insurance policy on Rochelle to do that. And, you know, you could just get a term policy, but what if we don't really have a defined timeline for how long we want to stay in business? So maybe we get a policy that lasts indefinitely on each other. And that way, if one of us passes away, no matter if it's next year or 30 years from now or 50 years from now, we, we can fund that buy-sell agreement and uh, a little more seamlessly. I and think I one really important back. thing that we're, I think we're probably going to bring it up later, but I just want to bring it up now while we're talking about it, is that term life insurance can be a really helpful tool because we pay that inexpensive cost right now, but then you can potentially convert it when you have a little bit more cash flow and use it in all of these ways. So you know, if you're early on in your career and you don't want to make a commitment to permanent life insurance, but you see that it could potentially have some value for you in the future, like buying an inexpensive term life insurance policy is a really, really good way to keep your options open because most of them have a conversion feature where you can convert into a permanent product without having to do any sort of medical underwriting. So if your health has changed significantly, it doesn't matter. You get to have that same health rating that you received when you purchased the term policy on your permanent life insurance policy. And I think that's such a great tool to just have in your back pocket so that you can keep your, your options open long term. And you may be someone who says, I'm never buying permanent life insurance. I don't <laughs> care. Like I'm, I'm anti-permanent, which is fine. Like that's totally, yeah. totally great. You never know what life's going to throw at you. And just having that option available is beneficial. And through a company that like gives you some flexibility and has some decent permanent products to convert to. So it, rather than being short-sighted when you're looking at life insurance and only going with the cheapest term option possible, you know, let's dig a little deeper, make sure that the company we're going with has the, allows us to convert that term to a permanent plan, ideally at any point during the life of the term. 
And also, ideally, they have an array of permanent products available that we can convert to so that we have options because you mm -hmm. just never know. A lot <laughs> could change in your life. A lot has already changed up to this point in your life. You just never know what could happen in the future. And I mean, the, the easy example I can give people is say you buy a 20-year term and year 19, you're diagnosed with a terminal illness. Well, let's flip the switch, convert it to a permanent policy to ensure that your family is getting that death benefit, even if you live beyond the 20-year mark. You know, if it's a terminal illness, you're eventually going to pass. Um, mm -hmm. so that's a good way to ensure that they'll get that money. But then, you know, depending on all these other scenarios we just outlined, they could very well apply to, to you guys in the future. Just having that option available on your term policy so that if your situation uh, is ever faced with one of these scenarios where having permanent coverage could be beneficial, you have that option available to you regardless of health and whether or not your health has changed since you originally got your term coverage. Yeah, and I think it's also important to note that the differences in cost between different term life insurance policies are not very dramatic. So even, you know, going from a very, very bare bones policy where maybe you can convert in the first 10 and 20 years to like a policy where you can convert the whole time and also you can convert into like a wider variety of permanent policies, like it's not generally going to be a, a huge cost difference. So I think just making sure you kind of keep your eyes open and are, are looking at all those aspects when you're even just looking at term life insurance is important. Correct. Yeah. I think one other thing we haven't talked about yet is just the potential for using life insurance for some long-term care benefits. Um, a lot of life insurance out there right now has like accelerated death benefits writers, um, which basically mean that you can potentially tap into the value of your life insurance if you have a chronic or a critical illness. So that can be really helpful. And many term life insurance policies have that as well, but it just may not last long enough for you to really need to tap into that and, and use that for end of life care. Um, so I think having that permanent life insurance policy, if you're con or, um, concerned about those costs can be really helpful. Yeah, and some policies specifically have long-term care riders on them and are kind of like a hybrid life insurance, long-term care policy where say you have a million mm -hmm. dollar death benefit, you can also tap into that million dollars for long-term care needs, like to cover the cost of an assisted living facility. So, you know, it'll decrease the death benefit amount for when you actually die, but that's okay. Um, you have that mm -hmm. insurance available should you need it. Now there, it, again, it's not true long-term care insurance. That would be something different, but you know, some people are weary of long-term care insurance and, um, you know, this life insurance option can be attractive for certain individuals who may have a need or desire for that death benefit, but also want to protect um, somewhat uh, against long-term care assisted living type costs. So that's another scenario where permanent policies could make sense. And then do we want to dive a little further into the cash value for those few souls who actually do want to use yeah. it as an investment or, or want to hear more or about maybe it. yeah or maybe even just cover like the talking points that you might hear from or, someone else you know? or ask and, about and, if you're ever pitched yeah. using it as an investment exactly yeah so i think like the important thing is that it is it is very expensive as a product like permanent life insurance is 
Um, and a lot of times when it is sold, it's generally treated as something where it's very tax favorable. And also it has, you know, if it's whole life insurance, it's sold as like, this is much more stable than your investment accounts. Like this is guaranteed to be there when you need it at this point in time. And so, you know, there's a lot of that, that language that's used and maybe it's driven a little bit by fear too. Like for people who are, are wary of investment volatility, it might be something that that's more appealing, honestly. Um, but I think the reason that it has, well, one of the reasons that it has such a bad rap is that it's sold to so many people who that's the last thing they should be doing. Like they have credit card debt or, you know, they have other expenses and obligations. They're not necessarily like maxing out their retirement plans at work and using those other like tax advantaged vehicles. And then they're sold life insurance that costs thousands and thousands of dollars. And they don't realize until years later that maybe it's not appropriate for them. And then they cancel it with a very, very little cash value in the account because it can take quite a while for that to actually start to build up. And they just feel like it's a big giant waste of money. And for them, it probably was. Um, so I think, I think that's one thing, but on the positive side, it can provide some tax advantages. Like there's some truth to that. Um, there are ways that you can borrow against the cash value in a life insurance policy if you structure it correctly and not pay taxes on the amount that you borrow because it's technically a loan. And then it's also more protected than a lot of like brokerage account or investment account assets in, in a lot of states. So if you have some sort of claim filed against you, for example, and you're in a state where, I mean, they should, they can generally come off after your investment account assets, or at least your non-retirement assets, but your insurance value, like the cash value in your insurance might be a lot better protected than that. Um, and Depends then, on the state and you definitely yeah, want to consult with an attorney regarding your absolutely. specific state regulations, but that is true. In certain states, it can be a highly protected asset. Yeah, absolutely. And then there is some truth that market returns are unpredictable, obviously. We know over long periods of time, like we hope to see certain rates of return, but we don't know exactly what that's going to look like. And I think over a long period of time in the past, we have seen if you weigh the costs and things like that, that general investment vehicles do a lot better as far as rates of return than permanent life insurance policies. But we don't know what's gonna happen in the future. So if you, you choose to do something with a permanent life insurance policy that has a little bit more structure and is a little bit more protected against any sort of downturns in the market, then it's possible that that, that could perform better over time. Um, and I have seen it used almost like a buffer for your investment account so that your investment accounts can be more aggressive. And I don't know, Corey, you could probably talk about this a little bit better, but Sometimes when we're building out investment account allocations, like we have a little bit in bonds because that's kind of some protection on the downside. If the stock market's not doing well, but we have a little bit in bonds, then, then maybe the bonds are doing okay in that market. But over a long period of time, stocks tend to perform better. So if we can keep our investment portfolio more in stocks and equities and take advantage of hopefully a higher rate of return over time, that have that life insurance vehicle as maybe that protection on the downside, then that that can be a way to sort of insulate your investment risk. But can you, yeah, 
for you though. I feel like I'm butchering it. <laughs> no, it's spot on. Um, yeah, I think the scenarios where it actually works and makes sense, it's a very small, unique scenario or set of scenarios, you know, definitely not for the masses. Um, mm -hmm. Until you're maxing out your 401k or 403b at work, maxing out your IRAs or backdoor Roth IRAs, and you've already fulfilled and you're you're maxing out all of your traditional tax favorable vehicles, you're putting money into a flexible brokerage account, um, and you're looking for additional places to invest that to further diversify and also offer some tax benefits, then that's when we can start exploring some of these alternative investment vehicles um, such as life insurance. And you definitely don't want to put a large portion of your net worth in there. But from a diversification standpoint, like Rochelle mentioned, the tax um, component, you know, one, the it's a tax sheltered vehicle. So the investment uh, value, any growth is tax deferred. And then if it's done correctly, you can actually borrow against your cash value tax free because it's a, technically a loan um, and it's your own money. So you're borrowing against yourself. You don't actually have to pay that money back if you don't want to. Uh, the loan balance would just come off of the final death benefit when you pass away because again it's it's your money so if it's structured correctly um, it, it can work favorably uh, but understand there is a, a significant cost of insurance to it so it's all else being equal probably not going to perform as well as a traditional investment account that doesn't have a cost of insurance attached to it but mm -hmm. also like Rochelle, you said, there many of those policies, you know, excluding variable, but like whole life and, and uh, like universe, index universal is probably the the more appropriate if we're looking at investment potential. You have a floor, often zero percent, so the investment bucket won't go down due to market performance. Um, you're capped on the upside, but the downside is limited. And for some people who may be weary of the stock market and are okay accepting that higher cost of insurance for something that has a little bit of, um, you, you know, downside protection, if you will, for back of, lack of a better term, that can be attractive. And really, the only way that it that works well is if you put as much into the policy as you're allowed to put in. Um, in order to still maintain the tax benefits. So that, I mentioned that tax deferred growth and tax um, tax free loans, you're only allowed to borrow from your policy tax free if your policy meets certain guidelines, you know, because otherwise you would just say, all right, I'm going to just set my cost of insurance at a dollar, have one dollar of life insurance and put, you know, tens of thousands into it. And then my cost of insurance will be super low and I'll get all this tax deferred growth and it'll be great. They don't let you do that. You have to, for every dollar you put in, you have to have a certain cost of insurance in order for it to be considered a life insurance policy and not an investment account. Um, but there is a pretty generous range there. So in order to really make it work, if you're going to explore it, you really do have to maximize the amount you're putting in consistently for a long time. You know, it, yeah, that's a big commitment. Like you got to stick with it for a good 10, 15 plus years. Otherwise, you're probably better off doing something else. But if you do stick with it um, and, and you do put the maximum allowed into it over time, you know, that tax deferred growth can 
uh, can add up and it, it can be a nice diversification tool um, from something that's fully exposed to the ups and downs of the stock market. Not for everyone, not appropriate for most of you, but for certain individuals, like I've talked to some people who are like, I do not, I do not like the stock market. It scares me. Uh, I don't, you know, I want protection. I also want to leave money to my kids. I need, you know, insurance and yada, yada, yada. I've got all this extra money that, you know, because I've done a good job planning and this, this is something I like to explore for, for these reasons. Great. All right, let's do it. Um, but in, unless you, you really understand what you're getting into and, and and are on board with the commitment you have to make to make it worthwhile, probably not worth it. Mm -hmm. I think if you have any questions about it, if you are at all doubtful, don't do it. <laughs> like it is, I feel like it's a tool in your tool belt that you could potentially use, but if you don't use it, it's not gonna make or break your plan. It's not like you need permanent life insurance to make the plan work, generally speaking. So, Correct. you know, if there's, yeah, so if there's another way that you can go about it, then then do that unless you really feel like it's the best thing for you and you really think that you can make a solid commitment to fund it appropriately over a long period of time. And it, it, it is a really big commitment. I think there's a lot of things that almost automatically rule it out for you. Like if you're a person that has credit card debt, you're a person that struggles to pay their bills. If you're a person that's not saving enough for retirement and you know you're not saving enough for retirement, if you're not maximizing like your plans at work, if you don't, you're not funding a Roth IRA, it's probably not appropriate unless there's some very, very specific life insurance needs that you have. Um, yeah, if you have so a high I think, income, you're living yeah. below your means, you're maxing out all your traditional investment vehicles, you're already putting a, a large amount into a taxable brokerage account and you're looking for an alternative um, vehicle to further diversify your plan. It, it can make sense if it's done right yeah. and done well. It, it can work out favorably. Um, the problem yeah. is most people don't use it for the right reasons, and most life insurance agents don't set it up appropriately for their um, for their clients or, or customers, if you will. So it's it's really important that you proceed slowly, ask questions, and you're working with someone that understands what you need to do to ultimately align it with your goals and get the most out of it. Definitely. I think if anyone has questions, feel free to reach out to us because I know that this is a very, very complicated topic. Like we're touching the tip of the iceberg on this one. Um, but I do think it's something that we get a lot of questions about. And we do come across people that have full life insurance policies they've had a long time and, and maybe they've pumped a lot of money into it. And it's just, you know, it's really discouraging when they realize that maybe it's not the best fit for them and they can't go back and like get all that money back. So that's, that can be a really challenging thing to think about. For sure. All right, you guys, thanks for listening. Until next time. We would love to hear your feedback and suggestions for future topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing podcast at thefinitygroup.com or by following Finity Group on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube at Finity Group LLC. You can follow me on Twitter at Corey Janoff CFP, Instagram at Corey Janoff, or on LinkedIn under my name, Corey Janoff. You can follow me on Twitter at Rochelle Finance or on Instagram, Vanderzanen Rochelle, or on LinkedIn under my name, Rochelle Vanderzanen. Check out all of the podcast episodes on thefinitygroup.com slash podcast 
on our Affinity Group YouTube channel or your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to check out our Financial Clarity blog at theaffinitygroup.com slash blog. Thanks for listening to this episode of Financial Clarity for Doctors by Affinity Group, LLC.